We're in Luke chapter 7. We've been talking about the healing of the centurion servant for the last couple weeks here. We've done two parts, two installments in Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. Uh, today, we're going to do the final part of that, focusing in on verses 9 and 10. It's an, an incredible miracle here with so many moving parts, so much encouragement. And we're going to see this morning, too, that there's a little segment in here where Jesus challenges our faith uh, to examine it and to see what type of faith we exert and walk in. I so enjoyed hearing the testimonies of healing, uh, Pastor Mike's testimony. There's more out there. There's so many testimonies that uh, of God me- meeting our needs, healing our bodies, and I encourage you to, to share them with the congregation. Amen. People need to hear what God's done in your life to spur faith in their own life. Amen. So Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, I'm going to thank God for the word, and then we're going to read uh, this account in Luke of this miracle from top to bottom, focusing in on the last two verses. Lord, we thank you for the word this morning. We thank you that you are too good to not believe, and you're a miracle-working, a wonder-working God, and you still are, Lord God. You still do miracles for those who have faith to believe what your word says is true. Father, bless the word this morning, expand our faith, and Lord, challenge us with all the principles you've hidden in here for those who seek you with their whole heart. Lord, we thank you that the Holy Spirit is going to quicken our minds and open our hearts and and allow these truths to be driven right down into our spirits. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Luke 7, 1 through 10. Now, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they had come to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and it was... And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returned to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Ten verses in Luke, a miracle top to bottom. Jesus heals this man's servant. And uh, there are a lot of moving parts here. We've done two installments already. First, we noted that uh, Luke's account doesn't say that the centurion ever got face-to-face with Jesus. Matthew seems to suggest at some point he does. But so far, we've seen two groups of proxies come on the centurion's behalf. The first group attested to his good character, the worthiness. They said, he's worthy for you to do this. Isn't that an amazing testimony of character? And he said he has a love for Israel, and he built the Jews a synagogue to worship in. This is a special guy. 
Now, the second group communicates the fact uh, that the guy doesn't consider himself worthy to have Jesus under his roof as Jesus is approaching. Another group goes out and they're like, whoa, 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 you don't have to come. You know, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. We see great humility that's coupled with this man's great faith. Verse 8, we get a glimpse of the reasoning behind the centurion's faith. He understood authority. Understand something. Understanding authority will be helpful to us in every part of life. We live in a nation, we live in a culture that more and more is lawless and doesn't respect authority. Come on, don't die on me now out there. We don't respect anybody's authority. Well, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to. We don't respect the police. We don't respect the government. We don't respect spiritual authority. And a lot of ways, those authorities that have abused their authority by not submitting to the Constitution and doing things that are lawless have spurred that in our culture. Well, if you don't have to follow the rules, why do we have to follow the rules? If you can lie, cheat and steal, why can't we? Oh, is it tax time yet? And see, there's this spirit of lawlessness because people don't understand authority. And we don't understand spiritual authority. People have no respect for the authority in the church, for the authority in the kingdom. And uh, who are you to tell me what to do? We see that in our culture. Now, Jesus' response to this guy who understands authority says, look, I, I understand authority. I say to my servants, do it, and they do it. I recognize in you spiritual authority, Jesus. And, you know, I made the point to say that this guy, uh, this guy, without even seeing Jesus, he'd only heard about him, came to a conclusion that the Pharisees and the Sadducees could never come to. They never understood where Jesus' authority came from. They asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? The kingdom of heaven is touching earth. He wouldn't even tell them. He's like, well, you answer me this. And he'd give them one that they could never answer, and they'd just all walk away looking stupid. Do you love the way Jesus dealt with religious hypocrites? He shut them down, just like, you know, with, with, with the word. And so he recognizes Jesus just by hearing what he does, that this guy has spiritual authority. So I believe if he just says the word, my servant will be healed. Do you realize the magnitude of that faith? great faith today. And so we pick up here in verses 9 and 10, and this chronicles uh, Jesus' four-part response to the centurion's faith. Understand something. When we exert faith, there will be a response to it. Let me say that again. When we exert faith, there will be a response to it. There will be a response from the kingdom of darkness, and there will be a response from the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Ever notice, you know, you take two steps forward and all hell breaks loose and it's trying to push you back, amen? Why? Because the kingdom of darkness responds to us exercising our faith. But so does the kingdom of heaven. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, amen? So there is always a response to the release of faith. Now, Jesus responds in four ways in these last two verses. And the first part of response is captured in verse 9. It says, Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith. Now, I want you to say that word marvel. Come on, say it like you mean it. You know, have any of you used marveled in a sentence this week? No, it's not a word we use, right? First service thought that was funny. You guys are all pragmatic. No, my diction does not include that word in my vocabulary. Because we don't say marveled, but there's something to this word marveled. You know, when it, when it says here that Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. If you look at the Greek word that's translated marveled in the New Testament in this text here, it's the word thalmazo, and it means to wonder or to admire. Uh, Jesus 
you know, looked at this guy and his faith was on such a level that he wondered at it. It was wonderful. And then he, he, he looks at this faith that's being expressed here. And not only does it make him wonder, but he admires it. I want you to get this picture of like, you know, you're admiring something, a beautiful painting. You're admiring, you know, something you've built or accomplished. You you wax your car down and it's a sunny day. Let's picture a sunny day here, minus two. Come on, let's picture it. And you step back and the sunlight hits the chrome and you're like, wow. That's what Jesus was doing. He looked back and he just admired this level of faith that was being expressed here. And I want to say something to all of us today. A great goal for all of us would be to do and say more things that Jesus would find wonderful and admirable. When you do stuff, I mean, you know, you do something and God in heaven, you could just feel him smiling down on you. When when, when you, you have a level of faith and you exercise it and you speak words of faith and you take a leap of faith and you can just feel God in heaven looking down with affirmation on you. We should purpose to do things that, that are admirable that God can look back and go, whoa, way to go, my son, my daughter. That's awesome, right? Does God talk like that? I don't know. Well, but, but it should be our goal to do things that are admirable in the eyes of God. Now, the truth is the disciples, and we're a lot like them, uh, were constantly doing and saying things that made Jesus do the opposite of marveling. Come on, loosen up a little bit on me out there. You know, they would do stuff and Jesus wouldn't go like, whoa, that's awesome. He'd be like, what? They'd say things. Peter was always saying stuff. And Jesus, six times in the New Testament, said, oh, ye of little faith. It seemed like one of the phrases he constantly said, oh, ye of little faith. Oh, ye of little faith. All the time, you guys, are you kidding me with this? You know, he would say things to his disciples about their their faith. And, uh, you know, he would say things, have you been with me so long and you still don't believe? That's the opposite of marveling. That's not, oh, you guys, man, you're blowing me away with your faith. He's like, you, are you kidding me? You, you've been with, you've seen me do these things, these miracles, the loaves of bread, the paralytics, the lepers cleanse, the, the lame leaping to their feet, and you still, he says, do you still have no faith? You see, it's very possible to be a child of God and exercise such a low level of faith that He's not wondering at us, but it's almost you sense a frustration in Jesus when he says, oh, ye of little faith six times, or have you been with me so long and you still don't believe, or where is your faith, or how, how is it that you still have no faith? Do you feel the, the, the conflict there? He's like, are, you know, guys, when are you going to get this? Show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Are you kidding me? I and the Father are one. Come on. That's what the disciples did. Let's not be too hard on them. We do the same thing. It should be our goal to exercise the kind of faith that makes Jesus marvel. Let's wake up every morning asking the Holy Spirit to stretch our faith so that we can please God. Someone say amen. The second part of Jesus' response was this. First, he marveled. Then he addresses the crowd. Notice in the text there, it says, you know, in verse 9, that he marveled at him about the centurion's face. And then listen to the next thing. And turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, Now, I find this interesting here because Jesus didn't always address the crowd. A lot of times, Jesus knew exactly why the crowd was there. They were a bunch of sign seekers. They wanted to see the show. They wanted to see what he would do. The Pharisees were there to try and catch him doing something wrong so they could criticize him. 
Jesus didn't know, he wasn't a crowd pleaser. He didn't put faith in the crowds. He, he didn't even, many times he didn't even acknowledge the crowds. Why? Because they were inconsequential to what was going on in the kingdom of God at the moment. But this time, at this miracle, he turns around and he addresses the crowd and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him. Now, they had gathered there to see a miracle. Jesus knew that. But Jesus didn't want them just to be, you know, walking around, uh, you know, seeing the show. But today he wanted to stop and give them an opportunity not just to see a, a miracle, but to see the kind of faith that makes miracles happen. Jesus wanted them to see the level of faith that was being expressed here because more important than seeing a miracle, they needed to see the level of faith. And you know what? This morning he wants us to see that level of faith as well. He wants us to see, oh, not just another miracle, not just another sick person healed, not just another sick body restored. No, but that there was a level of faith being expressed that allowed the kingdom of heaven to touch the kingdom of earth, that allowed the power of God to touch a sick man's body. And it was because of faith. So he stops and he addresses the crowd and he says, you know what? I want you to see this faith. Now, it does us no good as believers to be part of the crowd, to enjoy the wonder and the excitement of miracles or what God is doing in the earth. It does us no good to be part of the crowd if we never learn what allows miracles to take place in our own lives. Look, you and I need miracles, whether we know it or not this morning. We need miracles. We need miracles in our bodies. We need miracles in our finances. We need miracles in our relationships. We need miracles in our marriage, in our children, in our communities. I mean, I don't know about you, but it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that America needs miracles, that the church in the West needs miracles. And so this idea of having faith that you know, releases miracles. Jesus is saying, see the kind of faith that's being expressed here. Now, you can be part of the crowd. You can go to church. You can hear the word of God. You can get excited about the things God has done. Do you notice there's a lot of people excited about the things God has done? Oh, see what he did in the Old Testament? He parted the seas. He did this. Uh, and I'm excited about that too, but we need to be excited about what God is doing. Some people are just excited about what God may do. Oh, someday he's coming back for a church and he's going to take us all and we're going to be. But what is he doing now? You see, we need the kind of faith to release those miracles for the now moments in our life. Now, there's something that happens when you have a crowd and you have signs and wonders. Crowds have the fan mentality or the spectator mentality. Have you ever noticed that? You know, crowds are just there to see, and they're there to see the show, and there's no difference in this crowd that Jesus addresses that had gathered to follow him. But we have to be very careful as believers that we don't get the fan mentality or the spectator mentality. We've got to kill that mentality and learn to exercise our faith and be active participants in the kingdom of God. Hear me, you and I need to be, don't tell me what God has done. Don't tell me maybe what he'll do someday. Tell me what God is doing right now. Show me that you're an active participant in the kingdom of God, that you have faith right now for God to do something in your life, in this community, in this nation. That's what Jesus is trying to stir up here. Now that fan mentality or that spectator mentality, you know, we see it in sports, but it should never be in the church. 
We've got to learn to exercise our faith. You ever see people in the crowd, maybe at a baseball game, you know, and you see the person, they're sitting in their seat. They got like a, 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 a bottle of, you know, soda that, you know, it's like there's enough calories in there to feed a village in some remote place for like two weeks. And they're sitting there drinking it. They got a hot dog sticking out of their mouth. Come on. And then there, there's, a, there's a shot hit towards the second baseman, and he leaps in the air. He lays out flat, and he misses it. It just tips off his glove, and the guy spits his hot dog out and says, you bum. I don't know how many times at Yankee Stadium we saw stuff like that. People, like, people that couldn't touch their toes with a yardstick. You know, yelling at this guy who just, a display of athleticism, and you bum, that's the spectator mentality. That's the fan mentality. And if you sit back and you watch what's going on in the kingdom of God, all you'll do is criticize and second guess, and you should have did this, and I would have did that. You would have did that? I'd love for security to come and just pull the guy out of his seat and put him on second base. And then everybody just drill balls at him. We got to get out of that spectator mentality. We got to get out of that fan mentality, amen? Jesus doesn't want fans. That might come as a shock. Oh, I'm a big fan of Jesus. I got a big poster of him in my room. No, Jesus doesn't want fans. He wants disciples. Understand something. Jesus doesn't need an audience. Oh, well, we're just, you know, Jesus is doing his thing, and we're just sitting in the, you know, we're sitting here, and I got good tickets for Jesus today, and we're going to watch what he does. Jesus doesn't want an audience. He wants fellow laborers. That's what he's looking for. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I want some, Jesus wants some people to come alongside of him and work and be co-laborers to bring in the harvest, amen? Let me tell you something else. The kingdom of God doesn't need spectators. It needs faithful servants. Wow. The issue with being a spectator is this. If you're busy watching everybody else do what they're supposed to do, you're not, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. If you're watching the race and criticizing the race and second-guessing everybody's race, you're not running your own race. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily besets us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. If I'm a spectator, I'm not running my race. If I'm a fan, I'm not fighting my fight. I'm not doing what God's called me to do. You and I need to put the drink down, spit the hot dog out, get out of the stands, get out of the bleachers, and get on the field and do what we're called to do in the kingdom of God. Amen. Some of you are just looking at me. Oh, I didn't know we were going to get put to work today when we came to church. I thought we were just going to get to hear a good message. Well, are we fans or spectators or are we active participants in the kingdom of God? God wants to use you. Oh, well, we just like watching him use you, Pastor. It's entertaining. <laughs> no, God wants to use you. And God can use you in a ways that he could never use me to reach people that I'll never meet. The kingdom of God is for active participants. Now, we, we continue here with Jesus' response, and it's a, a four-part response, so this is number three. The, the third part of Jesus' response to the centurion's faith is this. 
Yeah, he marvels. Yeah, he addresses the crowd. But then he acknowledges the rarity of the faith on display. And I want you to see this here. He says, I, I say to you, still speaking to the crowd, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. That's quite a statement right there that he makes. We're going to pull that apart and find out why. But Jesus, he's admiring the centurion's faith. He's just like, wow, this is, this is a beautiful display here. But he's also making a subtle yet powerful point to all those listening in the crowd. Now, the religious people who were no doubtly in that crowd, you know, you had religious Jews, you had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you had all kinds of people who had religion. And, you know, they would look at this Roman centurion not only as an occupier, not only as you know, someone who is a tyrant and, you know, in their country and, and lording over them, but they would see him spiritually as a pagan with no connection to God, no legitimate spirituality, and no legitimate faith. You know, in many ways, that's the way we see people who don't go to church or believe like us, or, you know, we, we look at them and think, you know, and, and rightfully so in a lot of ways, it's what the scripture teaches, but these guys didn't have any regard for this Roman centurion. Yet here he goes displaying a level of faith that, that Jesus doesn't see in them. He's like three notches above them. And they've already written him off and discounted him. We've got to be very careful who we write off and discount. You know, God used this guy, uh, maybe you heard of him, the Apostle Paul. You know, he was killing Christians he was holding everybody's coats while they were stoning, you know, and killing and martyring. And he was like, yeah, good job. He was persecuting the church. And then God knocks him down and blinds him and raises him back up as one of the most powerful apostles ever to walk the face of the earth. Wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Come on, that's the Apostle Paul. Many people would have looked at him and wrote him off a long time ago. I think God likes when people write other people off. He's like, oh, yeah, watch this. Watch what I can do. And so here we are, Jesus is acknowledging the, the rarity of the faith on display. Um, he's kind of tugging at the, you know, the fact that this Roman, this pagan, this uh, overlord from Rome, he's got a level of faith that he hasn't seen before. He says, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. You say, well, how does this feel real to us here? Imagine if Jesus was in our parking lot and uh, somebody walks through the parking lot, some new age intellectual agnostic who'd never been to church in his life, and Jesus talks to him and he says, wow, you've got more faith than anybody I've ever met at Full Gospel Center. Some people just woke up. They're like, Say what? Could you imagine that? That would sting a little bit, wouldn't it? And no doubt it stung for the people in the crowd. And here's, you know... Here's some of the point that Jesus is trying to make here. There should be a twinge of conviction here when we, you know, hear him, you know, kind of lift this guy up who's, you know, unchurched and doesn't have the right spiritual pedigree. Why? Because he's saying you guys who should routinely express this level of faith are not. Yet this foreigner, this guy on the outside, this guy without a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's got more faith than you. That should sting a little bit. You and I should be walking in greater levels of faith than we are. 
The Jews had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had Moses. They had the law. They had the Ten Commandments. They had the prophets, yet they were slow to repent and slow to believe. Did you hear everything I just said? Now you would think, oh, those guys, you know, what's the matter with them? Well, let's bring it back to us. We have 66 books in the Bible, thousands of years of New Testament theology. We have the five-fold ministries in full operation. We have a church on every corner, the gospel on radio, TV, and internet, and we literally have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. God help us if we're slow to repent and slow to believe. We've got to have a level of faith that allows Jesus to marvel. It's not time to be doubting and uh, you know, this unbelief, or sometimes I think we just suffer from low expectations on God. Oh man, every time I pray, it gets worse. Ever been there? Maybe you laid hands on somebody and they didn't get better. I ain't doing that again. Just gonna coast my way through life and not expect too much because I'll be disappointed. Come on, I'm just being real with you on Sunday morning, right? And then we, get, we shrink back, and then we don't want to. Well, you know, I'm just, um, just going to watch. I'm just going to be a spectator. But yet, we've got all these things. We sang that song t- this morning, you know, too good to not believe. All the things we've seen, all the miracles, all the healings, all the captives set free, all the people who were lost and now they're found. We've seen all these things. He's too good to not believe. We shouldn't be slow to repent. We shouldn't be slow to believe. Jesus is saying, this foreigner, he's got more faith than anything I've seen. Wow. A little conviction, a little bit of an indictment. Now, Matthew's account of this miracle, remember, this is not only chronicled in Luke, but it's also in a second gospel. Matthew chronicles it in chapter 8 of his gospel. In, In Matthew's gospel, Jesus makes an even more startling statement. So, I mean, listen to this, what he says about God's people in Matthew 8, verses 10 through 12. Now, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So far, exactly what happened in Luke. And then verse 11 and 12, it goes off the rails. And he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Listen to this, verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a sobering scripture right there. He's saying to the people in the crowd, look, you guys who had the law and the prophets and Moses and were looking for the Messiah and missed him and are about to crucify him, you guys who had the right spiritual pedigree and considered yourself better than everybody else, some of you are going to miss it because you won't believe. And that lack of belief is going to have eternal consequences. I don't know about you where I hear, uh, you know, outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not a party I want to be invited to. No. Yet it's a sobering moment here as Jesus says this. Jesus is talking to people in the crowd who were born into their faith. They, you know, they, they felt they were above others. They were the chosen, the special people. They were the ones that had the law and the prophets. Surely heaven was theirs uh, and, they, and, and they were definitely going, yet Jesus is putting his finger on faith here. It's not going to be about religious pedigrees or what church you attended or what your family taught you. It's going to be about a personal relationship. 
It's going to be about the level of faith that you have in Jesus Christ. They, like many people, believe today that their eternity was secure because they observed religious traditions or took part in religious rituals or they were a part of the religious culture of the day. Jesus was saying, not so fast. It's not about any of those things, especially on the other side of the cross. It's about faith. And this guy's faith is way above yours. So if we're going to take a faith check today, we need to examine the level of faith we have in Jesus. This guy's faith was not about rituals or tradition or culture. It was just on the raw spiritual authority that he perceived that Jesus had. He believed who he was. Now, verse 11 says people will come from all over. And I like this. People will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, the gospel, because of what Jesus did on the cross, is now inclusive. It's not Jews only, it's for the Gentiles. It's for everyone. It's for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. And so heaven's gonna be an awesome place, amen? I mean, is that all the clapping you can do for heaven's gonna be an awesome place? You know, heaven's not gonna be, you know, well, here's the Pentecostal section and here's the, the Catholic section and that, the Baptist section is way over there. They think they're the only ones here. You know, we got the... That was funny. I don't even care. Yeah. No, heaven's going to be just a beautiful tapestry of all different colors and races and people from all different places. Amen. I'm looking forward to it. So, you know, that, that's an encouraging thing. All of those people from all over, who, who are they? They're people who have expressed faith in Jesus Christ. They're going to sit down with the Old Testament patriarchs with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and enjoy eternity because of what Jesus has done. Verse 12, you know, is sobering. That outer darkness, the weeping of gnashing of teeth. I want you to think about that. All of us maybe have come from religious backgrounds or know religious people who are religious and lost. But they think because I go to this church or I was baptized in this place or I, you know, I, I read this version of the Bible that I'm saved. Religious people who are comfortable in their sins and have no desire to have a relationship with Jesus will find themselves eternally separated from God. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sit well with me. So get out there and preach the gospel to everyone you can, to the up and outer, to the down and outer, to the agnostic, to the atheist, to the religious and lost. The fourth response to the centurion's faith is chronicled in verse 10 here and it says and those who were sent returned to the house and found the servant well who had been sick understand something here this is what we would call the miracle part of the miracle all the other stuff we talked about well that's just a setup and that's just what happened along the way you know, and it's all part of the miracle, but the miracle part of the miracle, I don't know if you've noticed this as we preach through this, but it's usually the shortest part. It's almost the easiest part. For Jesus, it's no sweat. He didn't have to go and, you know, do this big performance or say this big speech or, you know, call for the elders, get the anointing oil. No, he just released his healing virtue and miracles took place. So the fourth part of the a response is here is that Jesus acts upon the centurion's faith. Remember I said when faith is released, it's going to provoke a reaction, amen? The enemy's going to react to it, but also the kingdom of God is going to react to the release of faith. In this case, we see Jesus responds to the centurion's faith, and he does exactly what this guy asks for. 
Now, I want you to understand something. Jesus heals the man remotely. That means he, you know, he never went there, didn't lay hands on him. You know, uh, according to Luke's account, he had never even come face to face with the centurion. Uh, Matthew suggests that he does. But the truth is that in both accounts, you're going to see that the man is healed without Jesus ever going into his presence. And think about, you know, how, how that happens as in accordance to the way we think miracles have to happen. You know, we think whenever we're dealing with the enemy or rebuking sickness or something, we got to get really loud and say some really good scriptures and, you know, a couple good Bible words in there. As if, you know, the volume of our prayer, uh, you know, is what really makes the devil flee. It's the decibels. Come on, I'm making fun of you. Yeah, I'm making fun of Christians. We get goofy, don't we? Jesus would be just like, come out of him. Loose him and let him go. Be healed. Your faith has made you whole. <laughs> All right, that one's a little weird. It's not the volume. It's not the right words. It's not a secret prayer. He releases his healing virtue remotely. He's not even in the guy's presence. He doesn't lay hands on him. In fact, if you look at both accounts, it doesn't even suggest that Jesus said a single word. You know, the guy had faith that, you know, uh, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is like, that's awesome. Watch this. I'm not even going to say a word. His healing virtue was released because faith provoked it to be released. He didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to do anything. That's the kind of faith God wants to develop in us, that we just believe, that we just believe, that we just walk in the goodness of God and miracles are released all around us, that, you know, things are falling into order, things are falling into place, and we're not looking at the problems. We're just focused on him and praising him and thanking him for being a good God. God wants us to release faith like that. I found out in my life after decades of walking with God that, you know, it's just, the, it's just that simple faith of confessing, you know, what I don't yet have or what I don't yet see, but just saying, thanking God in advance for who he is in my life. He just releases miracles. Took care of that one, took care of that one. Knock that giant down, level that path for you, son. Keep going, keep praising, keep walking, keep your eyes on me. Come on this morning. The fact that he heals the man remotely suggests two things. Number one, Jesus, the word, he is the word, amen? The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word can heal without even saying a word. That's the power of the God we serve, amen, morning? Amen. I mean, just, he, just, just because our faith was released and he responds to it, he can work miracles if we will just believe. Number two, the second thing about this remote healing is this. When we exercise faith, we should be aware of that we are going to get what we believe for. See, this guy believed, oh, Jesus, you don't have to come into my house. I'm not even worthy. You just can say the word, and I mean, he'll be healed. I understand authority, and I recognize authority in you. So just say the word, and he'll be healed. Jesus was like, wow, that's marvelous. I'm just going to stand back and admire that, and then I'm going to release healing virtue. But notice, the, the guy got exactly what he believed for. Jesus didn't come in. Jesus didn't have to lay him. No, he just, you know, the word was released and healing virtue was sent forth. You and I are going to get what we believe for according. Notice what Jesus said to people many times when he healed them. Your faith has made you whole. 
according to your faith, you are healed, amen? You gotta get this this morning, amen? Some of us are not exercising enough faith. We're, we're sitting there, you know, well, I believe God can mostly heal me, or I believe he can heal this, but I'll, you know, I'll have to take medicine for the rest of my life, or, you know, um, well, I believe God can straighten. And, and we put limits on our faith, and we tell God what we can do. Do you realize you're gonna get what you believe for? So stretch your faith this morning. Some of us have settled for way less than what God wanted to do because we haven't exercised our faith. God, help us. Thank God that he's so patient with us, so patient with me, amen. I know heaven is laughing at me a lot of times. They're watching me on a big screen laughing. Look at this guy. God's working and he's stretching. He's laughing at you too. Don't get all excited out there. Because we're like little babes, we're like little children, and he's trying to develop us into mature saints, amen? And it's a process, and he's patient, but we do goofy stuff. So Jesus responds to the centurion's faith. He had great faith. He got a great miracle. He got just what he asked for. He got what he believed for. Jesus acknowledges the rarity of the faith on display. And, you know, we understand that... uh, We've got to push the level of our faith. We've got to push the envelope of what we believe. The, the Jews had so much going for them, but we have even more with all the revelation and all the, all the good preaching and the theology and the complete scripture. Just the fact that we have the Bible, we're without excuse. It's too good to not believe, church. He's a healing God. He's a wonder-working God. He's a God of miracles. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, I thank you this morning for this account of Jesus healing the centurion's son. I pray it has stretched our faith, provoked us to have a level of faith that uh, allows you to marvel and to be pleased with us. Father, I pray that today we would believe you for the impossible. I want to give an opportunity today to anyone who's here who may not have had an opportunity to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, we would be saved. It's very simple. We have to acknowledge that we're sinners. We we realize that Jesus is the Savior. We accept him personally. He forgives our sins. He fills us with the Holy Spirit, and he gives us the power to live a different life. If you're here today and say, man, I've tried everything I know. I've tried to be better. I've tried harder. I tried to, you know, get my life together. Nothing has worked. Nothing ever will work. That's why Jesus died. He died because we need a savior. If you want Jesus to save you today, to forgive your sins, to give you a clean slate and a fresh start, I want you to lift your hand today and say, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. God bless you back there, sir. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you. God bless you. Don't miss a hand. Don't, this is the most important part of our service. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you, ma'am. Don't miss anybody. Thank you, Jesus. This is what it's all about. Anyone else? Don't miss this. Clean slate, fresh start, forgiven. Let's pray a prayer together. Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you a sinner, and I recognize you're the Savior. I recognize your spiritual authority to forgive sins. So I ask you to forgive me. I repent. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, and give me the power to live a different life. From this moment forward, I belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Give him praise this morning.